Well, good morning and happy Easter. Uh, if you are new with us, my name is Tim Deal. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to have you with us this morning. Uh, before we jump in, there's a, a reminder, uh, something I want to kind of highlight that we're getting ready to start tomorrow that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks that we're really excited about, and that is our Renew 90-Day New Testament reading plan. We are, starting tomorrow, going to be reading through the New Testament together, and we want to invite you to be a part of it. Whether you have been coming for years, and maybe you've read through the, Old, the New Testament multiple times, uh, or Maybe this is your first time here or in a church at all, and you're kind of curious about this person, Jesus, but you don't know much about him, and you've never picked up a Bible. You don't even own one. Wherever you are on that continuum, this would be a great opportunity for you. So join us. You can do so by grabbing one of these books. There's a sign-up sheet on the back table that you can just you can sign, and I encourage you, if you sign up, many of you have signed up online. Uh, some of you have signed up here. Make sure you take some time to sign up the artwork that Brian DeLosier has donated, his Rise Up artwork that we're using as kind of our thematic piece for this reading. Um, there's a marker back there, a painted marker that you can use to sign it, and this is going to become a permanent part of our facility then. So it'll, it'll be kind of a memorial, a reminder of something that we did together that we think is going to be really powerful. So sign up this morning. Uh, we're going to start that tomorrow. You'll get an email today if you sign up, kind of kicking that off. Uh, you can, again, get your book in the back. One thing I do want to uh, make note of is there was a slight editorial error in terms of numbering the days uh, we noticed in the book, and so we've included a kind of corrective addendum, if you will, uh, that you can get in the back. These separate sheets are in the back. You can just add it in there. Or if you download the PDF on our website, that's all corrected, so uh, you'll be good to go there. So again, grab one of those and join us starting tomorrow. We're excited for that. Oh, and while you're at it, uh, as part of that reading, you don't have to join a discussion group to do the reading, but it will really enhance your experience. It'll help you kind of process what you're learning and apply it to your life. So we encourage you to look at, in your bulletin, you'll see there's three different discussion groups that meet during those 90 days. We encourage you to join us for one of them. Two of them meet here, one of them meets off-site. Uh, these will be a great opportunity to both, again, kind of process what you're learning and also make some connections, meet some people. So join us for one of those and join us for the 90-day reading plan. We think it'll be a great time together. All right. Well, this clip was from Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. If you're familiar at all with the story, you know this is kind of moving towards the climactic finish, where Harry realizes that in order for him to save Hogwarts, to, to defeat Voldemort, who is kind of the embodiment of evil, in order for him to do this, he's going to have to die. There's no way around it. And he's recognized that, and he's come to embrace that that is his destiny. And as he does, you, you see this scene, and you, you probably couldn't read it. He, he breathes on the golden snitch, and there's an inscription that comes on it that says, I open at the close. And it's both this, this reference to it, it only opens as death draws near, but there's also an allusion to resurrection in it. I open at the close. That kind of points us to what you might not know yet in the story, but you later discover that really the key to this is not just that Harry dies, but that Harry comes back to life. And then when he does, his sacrifice empowers all of the students at Hogwarts to join in this ridiculous battle against the forces of evil to the extent that they're actually able to win. 
It's a great story, but it hangs on the willingness of Harry to give his life. Well, we have been in a series uh, over the past few weeks that we've called Look Closer. And what we've been doing in this series is looking at the stories that Jesus tells to teach. These are called parables. They're meaning stories. And these stories, you know, there's something to learn from them at face value, but they're really intended to to draw us in, to to call us to look a little closer, to, to maybe to turn it a little bit and see it from different angles. And as we do, we learn remarkable things about who Jesus is, who we are, and what it means to live in God's presence here and now. So this week, we're going to be kind of wrapping up our series as we look at a brief parable that Jesus tells. Jesus tells this story after he uh, comes into Jerusalem, the beginning of what we might kind of traditionally call Holy Week, uh, the week before he's crucified. He rides in on a a donkey, which is this allusion to this, this kingly entrance. There's a parade of sorts. People come all around, and they're full of expectation about what Jesus is going to do. They, they expect that Jesus is going to come in, and he's going to conquer Rome. And, and of course, in their minds, they have been waiting for generations for someone who will come and overthrow the Roman power. And the way they understand that this is going to happen is the only way they know how any of this ever happens, through violent revolution. That there's going to be a king who comes and, and rallies the troops around him and overthrows the government who destroys their adversary and sets up a reign of peace because that's how it works. And so Jesus tells a story to reorient the way that they understand what exactly God is doing at this moment. So we're going to look at this story in John's Gospel. This is the fourth biography of Jesus that we come to in the New Testament. And again, it's fairly brief. If you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. It's John chapter 12. We're going to begin at verse 23. If you don't, don't worry about it. The passage will be up here on the screen. You can follow along. John writes, Jesus replied, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me, because my servants must be where I am, and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. So this is an agricultural society, so this illustration, this story Jesus tells, would have been easy for these people to wrap their minds around. The image of a seed that dies in order that new life can be experienced. It would have made total sense. But it probably would have been a little confusing. Why this story and why now? And what is it that Jesus wants us to know, wants us to see in this? This doesn't seem like the kind of story that a conquering king would tell on the eve of his final battle, where he vanquishes the foe. So what's happening? Well, I think that there are, there are three different kind of angles that we can use to look at this. And there's, there's probably others. Like all of these stories, there are lots of different ways to look at these, and we can't cover them all. But I want to look at three different ones today. And these are kind of from time perspectives. 
I think that there are ways that we can look at this for what Jesus intended for them to get then as they heard the story. There are ways for us to understand what it means for us now, and there are ways for us to kind of look to the future and see what this might mean. So let's kind of look at it through those angles this morning real briefly. First of all, then, what did Jesus want these people at this time to understand that he was saying? Well, I think kind of obvious, the face, you know, kind of at the face of it, if you know the story, is that Jesus ultimately gives himself over to death. Jesus is crucified, publicly tortured and killed. That the way in which this king ascends to the throne is through a public execution. He dies. Jesus is showing them this is how God is choosing to work right now. Not through a violent revolution, but through giving himself up to the violence that will ultimately kill him. But that's necessary for him to die so that new life can come. One of the early leaders in uh, the Jesus movement, Paul, says it this way in his letter to his friend, companion, Timothy. 1 Timothy 1.10. He says, He, Jesus, broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. That it's the way that God chooses to deal with the powers that be, the Roman Empire, and the ultimate power of death itself is by dying. By taking on death and bringing life out the other end. It's not the way anybody expects it. But this is who Jesus shows us that God is. This is the character of the creator God. One who doesn't impose his will through violence, but gives himself in sacrificial love. And that it's in that giving of himself that we find life. This is who God is. This is what God is like. Not a conquering king, but a self-giving savior. This is totally different than the vision that these people had at this moment. And for many of us, it's totally different than our vision of God now. But this is who Jesus tells us that God is. This is what Jesus' death shows us. This is how God defeats death. He dies and rises again. So that's then. What about now? What does this mean for us today? Well, again, as, as Paul alluded to, understanding that this is what God is like and this is how God has acted shapes everything for those of us who are looking to follow in the way of Jesus today. It changes everything about how we choose to live. Again, Paul talks about it this way in another one of his letters, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. If this is what God is like, if this is how God acts in the world by giving himself in love, then 
for us, for people who are made in the image of God, this is how we find life, by following in his way and learning what it means to live lives that reflect the character of Jesus in the world. Where we find life by giving our lives in love. It's analogous to the seed. Right, so Jesus uses this metaphor of a seed, and, and one of the things you, you come to know is pretty quickly in life is that seeds don't actually die. Right? So when Jesus talks about a seed dying, it, it's not death like we think of death, but it is a shedding of one thing so that something else can live. So if, if you know anything about seeds, and I don't know much, but I do know that when you plant them, there's a what's called a seed coat. There's a protective covering around the, the embryo of the seed that's going to then become the plant, the flower, whatever it is. And that's what you bury when you plant the seed. But in order for it to grow, that outer coat, that protective shell has to get shed. It has to kind of get broken off so that the, the plant can shoot its roots down and, and grow up through the soil and become what it was created to be. In a very real way, it has to die in order for life to come. And so it works perfectly as an illustration for what needs to happen for us as we find life in following Christ, is that we have to die. We have to lose something. We have to shed our protective layer. Paul says it this way, and again, in Romans chapter 6, he says, For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. There's this mysterious way in which when we, when we trust in Christ, we're buried with him. We are, we are kind of buried in, in the same way that a seed is buried. Not in a way that, that it's lost, but in a way that it's given what it needs to then become all it was created to be. But in order for it to to do that, to, to fully flower, to become the plant it was intended to be, it's got to die first. It's got to lose that protective coat. I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday by uh, a guy named George Wheel. And he, he wrote an essay that he called The Easter Effect. And what he was doing was he was talking about how this, this hope in the resurrection affected early followers of Christ. And ultimately was the, the engine that this movement needed to become the, the largest um, faith movement in the world. And he wrote this about the impact that what he calls the Easter effect had on these early Jesus followers. He says, those shaped by the Easter effect became the people who knew how history was going to turn out. Because of that, they could live differently. The Easter effect impelled them to bring a new standard of equality into the world and to embrace death as martyrs if necessary because they knew now that death did not have the final word in the human story. It was this hope in the resurrection that caused them to live differently here and now in a way that changed everything. It's because they believed that they now knew how history was going to turn out, that death would not have the final word, that enabled them to live life differently. This is the, the practical part where it comes to bear here and now. 
is the transformation that it has on us as we learn what it means to die to ourselves. If you think about it uh, in terms of what it is that we, that we wear as protective coats, I think it comes a little bit more into focus. Things that, that we use to protect ourselves, to, to shield us from whatever it is that we're afraid of, whatever it is that we think threatens us. There are lots of things that we kind of do to save ourselves, even though if we don't use that language, right? So it might be kind of preserving our reputation, ensuring that people think well of us, whether that's at work or in our community. Maybe it's uh, making sure that our financial portfolio is where it needs to be, that, it's, that we're doing everything we ought to do, putting away enough money for, for us, for our family, for our kids. Maybe it's our plans for the future, our carefully curated vision of how our life is going to go, and we have it down to a T. Like, we just know exactly where all of this is going and how we're going to get there. Or maybe it's even just our desire to figure it out, to, to know what's true. And so if we just kind of take in enough information from enough different sources, we can, we can have this, this sense of control, this understanding of what's happening. And as good as many or even all of these things are, there's a way that we come to trust in them, to hope in them, that they're going to provide for us the future that we needed or wanted or always imagined. The problem is that control is an illusion. All of these protective codes, all of these, these shields, it's an illusion. And we find that pretty quickly as we go through life, that control isn't something that we're able to have. So I don't typically think of myself as a control freak. If you know me, you know I'm fairly laid back. But I've come to learn something about myself in the last few uh, recent history. Um, but it came to light, particularly this week, I really feel like I have to be in control in one particular situation, and that's when I'm driving. I really, really need to be the driver in any and all situation. It doesn't matter who the other person is. You might be a completely capable, trustworthy driver. It creates great anxiety for me to be a passenger in your car, whoever you are. doesn't matter. And this week, that was front and center because we went to Pittsburgh on Wednesday so that my son could visit a couple of universities out there. And we went as a family, and we're like, hey, you know, we got to get 65 hours of driving time in before he takes his test in August. And so this is a great opportunity, right? So we're just going to have him drive. Now, my son is a fantastic driver. He did really well. But I was just a bundle of anxiety the entire time. Not because he did anything wrong, but because I'm constantly thinking about what would I do in this situation. And he's not doing what I would do, right? Like, literally, my, he would get, get so frustrated with me sometimes. He'll be driving, and he'll, like, slow down to the actual speed limit because he's obeying the traffic laws. And I'm like, you don't need to stop. What are you doing? And he's like, Dad, I'm just I'm driving the speed limit. And I'm like, oh. Of course you are. That's good job. Well done. Right? Like, he's doing the right thing, but because I feel the need, like, I feel like I have to be in control, it, it just creates all sorts of anxiety. But the problem is, if you're ever going to go anywhere with anyone or do anything outside of just kind of live in your own bubble, you have to give up control at some level. You've got to drive with other people. 
if you're going to live life, you know that life is basically the art of learning to recognize that control is an illusion. It's realizing how little control we actually have. And you know this because you've experienced it. Maybe it's um, that relationship that you really thought was going in the right direction that ended. And you couldn't understand why. Or, or maybe it, it's your kids who you raised perfectly. You read all the books, right? Like you, you did the right thing. You did the parenting classes. You, you made all the choices that you were supposed to make. And they're still not doing the thing you want them to do. It's almost as if they're their own person. Or, or maybe it's trying to figure out your relationship with your spouse. And even though, again, you, you're trying to do everything you know to do, it's just never quite as smooth as they all told you it would be. Maybe it's losing a job. Maybe it's taking a hit in your finances, not because you did anything wrong, but just because of how the market is. Or maybe it's losing a loved one, suddenly, that shakes you. One way or another, living is the art of learning to come to grips with the reality that control is an illusion. You do not have control over your life. You can make some really good decisions, and you should. But there aren't any guarantees. But this, as scary as it sounds, it's actually an opportunity. The opportunity of recognizing that you don't have control is an invitation to trust. An invitation to die to your attempts to protect yourself and to maintain your beautifully curated life and to surrender, to entrust yourself to the one who gives himself in love for you, conquers death, and invites you to find new life. And as he do, as you do, grows something beautiful in you. Something that feels like freedom. Because as scary as it is to realize to think about the fact that you're not in control, it's true. And so there's a freedom that comes when you stop trying to be in control and you begin trusting. Trusting that the one who brings life from death can carry you no matter what. That whatever you experience, there's hope that new life can come. And so you don't have to be afraid. And we see this in, in Harry Potter. And this is why this story, I think, is so, resonates so deeply with so many people. Is that the Rowling kind of connects with this deeper truth. That when Harry dies and resurrects, that this reality empowers his comrades to rise up against the forces of evil. That suddenly they're not afraid anymore. And this is what the hope of the resurrection does for us. It empowers us to live lives free from fear and free from the anxiety that comes 
with living under the illusion that we need to be or that we can be in control. It's freedom. And as we surrender and put our trust in the one who dies and rises again, something new grows in us. Brian Zond, the uh, pastor, author, says it this way. When the story of Christ gets weaved into our story, it begins a new story where we are raised from the dead. When this becomes the story that we put our hope in, when, when we begin to put our hope in the one who conquers death and rises again, it empowers us to live lives that reflect that hope in very real and practical ways. So there's then, there's now, but then there's also a forever piece. Now, if you've been around here, you know that we talk a lot about the fact that when Jesus talked about what God was up to in the world, he was not simply talking about a way for us to go from here to heaven somewhere. That Jesus' message was not, well, if you just believe this thing and you put your trust in me, then when you die, you'll go to heaven and it'll all be great. But that it was a new thing that God was doing here and now that goes on forever. And that's really important. But we don't want to miss the fact that one of the core things that we learn, that one of the core hopes that we have in Jesus' message is that there is hope for resurrection. That the hope of resurrection, the hope of life after death is actually real. That Jesus actually conquers death and brings life. That we don't have to be afraid of death. That we know how this all ends. It ends in resurrection. It ends in hope. That as Weigel wrote in his, uh, his essay in the Wall Street Journal, that Death does not have the final word in the human story anymore. Resurrection is the final word. And that creates hope. Again, Paul, Paul riffs a lot on resurrection in his letters. In his letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, he writes, Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to life forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. So our hope in the resurrection begins now, but it extends for all eternity. That we can begin living different kinds of lives now, that we don't need to be in control, because our hope is that even if the worst happens, Death is not the last word. The last word is resurrection. And so we can live free from fear. We can live lives of trust because the final word is resurrection. Then, now, and forever. This is our hope. This is what the resurrection is all about. History has been rewritten rewritten and resurrection is the final word well we're going to kind of close our time together this morning by taking communion now communion is this concrete way in which we remember Jesus's sacrificial death as we take a little bread and a little juice we remember his body and his blood it reminds us what story that we're a part of 
what our hope is in, who our hope is in. But we're going to do an additional concrete activity, and we're not putting this at the same level of communion, but we hope this will be a meaningful activity for you. Um, we're, you might have noticed that there's a whole lot of something up here. And what these are is our, our youth ministry, our Highway 712, spent some time and put together these biodegradable pots with soil in them. Along with this, you'll see on either end of the table there are seeds. And these are seeds to dwarf sunflowers. And what we'd like to invite you to do as part of your response this morning is as you come through, as you take your communion, you can come to this table and, and take communion as you stand here, to uh, drink your juice and take your bread, and you can put your cup in the basket at the end. Or you can take it back to your seat and do it too. If you're able to juggle everything, that's fine. Um, but after you take communion, we'd like you to come to the table and we'd invite you, you don't have to, but we'd encourage you, to, to take a seed and to plant it in a pot and take it back with you. And our hope is that this isn't just you know, a thing to do, but that it might actually serve as a, a symbol, something to remind you of your hope. So maybe as you plant the seed, you do it as a remembrance of Jesus' death, of the way that God defeats death and brings life by giving himself in Christ for us. So maybe you plant that seed as a reminder of Jesus' self-giving death and resurrection. Or maybe you plant it as a way to symbolize some protective layer that you feel like you need to shed. Some way that perhaps God's spirit is challenging you that maybe you're trying to control. Maybe it's a relationship you're trying to control. Maybe it's a, a, a part of your life that you're trying to hold tightly to that feels like it's slipping through your fingers and you just don't know what to do. Maybe this is an invitation to, to trust God with that by planting a seed and watching new life grow. Or maybe you, like me, have lost someone who you love. And planting a seed for you will be a way to remember that our hope is that death does not have the final word, that resurrection does. And so even as we mourn the loss of someone we care about, we look forward in hope to the new life that comes. So I would invite you, wherever you're at, to take communion and then to come to the table and to plant a seed and to take it with you. But there's a, there's a second part. Now, you're welcome to just take it with you and to just keep it at home and watch it grow, and you can plant it, and that'd be great. They're beautiful. Or three weeks from now, April 22nd, we would invite you to bring it back, to come back. Now, now we're going to have care instructions. We don't want you to bring it back dead. Um, it... If it were, I mean, I'm going to have to work pretty hard at this. We kill plants like crazy at our home. But there are care instructions at the table as you leave um, so that if you're really, if you have a green thumb, you're going to look at these and you're going to go, oh my gosh, this is so simple. Why would they even write this down? If you're like me, you're going to be like, thank you. Somebody knows that I kill plants. So take it with you and take care of this thing. And three weeks from now, we're going to be kind of drawing our next series to a close. You, when you came in, you hopefully got an invitation, and I have one up here somewhere. It's our Waging Peace series. Uh, here it is. So hopefully you got one of these. Over uh, the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about how the resurrection transforms the way in which we engage with
conflict, both in ourselves and in relationships with others. Um, And so at the end of that series, on the 22nd, we're inviting you to bring those pots back. And what we're going to do, if you bring them back, is we're going to take them down to the Opportunity House, and we're going to plant them there in their garden, so that those who have experienced some of the most difficult challenges of life get a chance to have something really beautiful that they get to look at, that hopefully call them to have hope that death doesn't have the final word, that there is resurrection. So we're going to do that together. Um, So I'm really excited about that. So again, I would invite you to to plant a seed now, take it home, take care of it, and then bring it back in three weeks. Join us, and then we'll take it down and plant it at the Opportunity House. We think it'll be a really meaningful way to kind of live out some of this concretely, what we're learning. Now, I say all of that. If this is all new to you, or for whatever reason you feel really uncomfortable with any of this, feel free to just hang tight in your seat or feel free to kind of skip communion or skip the planting. None of this is, you're not obligated into any of this. But I would invite you to consider participating as we do. In just a moment here, I'm going to pray for us. After I pray, we're going to stand. And for all those who are going to participate, we're just going to head down the side aisle and we'll take communion first. And then again, you can take it at the table if you like, if you need both hands to kind of operate. um, Or you can you know, do it one-handed if you have real good skills like that. Um, however it works for you, and then you can take the plant back to your seat. Let me, uh, let me pray for us as we move into this time together. Father, I'm really grateful that death does not have the final word. That resurrection does. Would you help us, even now as we go through these these exercises, this taking of bread and juice, this planting of a seed, and then would you use these concrete expressions to remind us of the real and present hope that you offer, that in Christ, death doesn't have the final word. And so we're freed to new life now, free from holding on to the illusion of control and free from living in fear that death is the end. Would you empower us by your spirit to live courageous lives full of hope and life and willing to shed our protective layers and trust you. And we ask this in Jesus' name.